Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? We good? All right. I'm doing good. Well, I'm glad to see everybody. Good to be with you in God's house today to worship together. And we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going to finish it up this summer. We're going to finish up the Gospel of Luke in August, uh, or maybe the first week of September, right around there. And then we've got something new for September um, that, you know, uh, drum roll please. It's going to be a book of the Bible that we'll be studying together. I'm thinking First Peter. I don't know. I'm going to. I'm getting feedback from others. I met with Patrick White this week from Eastern Hills, and he wants to do First Peter. And I'm thinking, I like First Peter. Let's do First Peter together. So, good chance that's what we'll do. But we'll make a final decision here in the next couple of weeks. Um, if you're visiting with us, glad to have you here, and I hope to have a chance to to meet you if I've not done so already. Um, so we're in the part of Luke that is called the Olivet Discourse. And it's because Jesus is on a mount called Olivet that he is preaching this message. And um, I'll be straight up with you. This is one of the more challenging texts um, in the, the Gospels for sure. And so the, this sermon will be maybe a little bit more technical than what we normally do. Um, but it's important because how we interpret this text has... Uh, it bears weight for our eschatology. Eschatology meaning the study of last things, the study of the end times. So some people think as far as eschatology goes, the end of time, that sort of thing, some people think, well, that's really not all that important. We can't control the future, so let's just be faithful in the present, and God will sort it all out. That's one way to look at it. Other people go to the opposite extreme where eschatology is everything to them, all right, where they're always trying to, it's, it's like the guys that, that you hear about on the news every once in a while that, you know, some crackpot, you know, guy out in the middle of nowhere, he's going to predict that Jesus will come back in three weeks or something like this, and they usually have some kind of chart that looks like, it looks like this if it's up on the, or is it up on the screen? Um, I've got this, uh, this prophecy chart that I grew up, um, are, are we, uh, is, the, is the projector thing on, working? Oh, well. Well, if it's not on, uh, if it comes on, you'll get to see this hilarious joke uh, that I have. I've got a, I downloaded a prophecy chart from John Hagee. Um, so I grew up watching this guy. Uh, well, I should say, I grew up familiar with this guy. I'd never watched him, but his commercials would be on TV. And he was the prophecy guy, the end times guy that would tell you, you know, very precisely, specifically when and where and all that. Um, Well, to one degree or another, the way that we view the end times affects our outlook on life and the present, right? Um, And there's, it's it's a... the way that we think about the world even is going to be affected by our outlook on prophecy or or look on the end times. You know, uh, growing up, I used to think that Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist. Is anybody familiar with this? Anybody heard uh, Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist? Okay, maybe I'm, uh, maybe a couple of you. But there's this thing in Revelation about, you know, the beast looks as though he had a mortal wound to his head, but it had healed. And Mikhail Gorbachev has this huge birthmark on his forehead that looks like it could have been like a wound. And people interpreted this in all manner of ways. So it's hilarious. Anyway, the point is this. We don't need to take it to an extreme to say eschatology does matter because it shapes the way that we think about um, life. And there are different people in our theological tribe even that have different views of eschatology. People that, you know, I'll give you some examples here in a moment. People that I think very highly of, uh, pastors and leaders that I have the, the, the utmost respect for, um, have different views on the end times. So um, a couple of examples here. Um, uh, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul two guys. I respect both of them very highly. R.C. Sproul has passed on to be with the Lord. John MacArthur is in his 80s, and he's still preaching fire. So uh, these guys have been around for a long time. I would, I would be 
part, I would join either of their churches. You know, even though R.C. Sproul's Presbyterian, I think I could join his church even. So these are guys, and both of them were close friends. Um, they, uh, I've got a picture here. I don't know if you could see it. Um, do we have, do we have the, the screen yet? Um, these guys, so we're not showing up on the screen. But um, I've got a picture of them playing golf. And uh, they, they would hang out together. And even though they had wide, you know, pretty big disagreements, um, these guys were good friends. So the point is, is that I want to I share with you a theological perspective, an eschatological perspective that need not be um, a deal breaker for people to, in the same church, but they do affect our outlook on life. And so it does shape things, even if we have, um, you know, even if we don't land on the same place. So there's, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul represent kind of two camps, the two big camps that I want to be addressing today. John MacArthur would be the pre-millennial camp. And the pre-millennial camp, that is, the true church will remain faithful amidst persecution, even, even to the end. Um, and so there's going to be this cataclysmic judgment of God in the last times, and the church will experience that. And we should not expect the church to eventually overcome uh, but rather, the church will thrive spiritually, but there, there won't be any kind of um, a victory of the church as such, if that makes sense. Well, while, while they're working on that, I'll, I'll just tell you what, you what we're seeing here. So this, what you're seeing is a, that's a, uh, John MacArthur preached a sermon, um, or I don't know if it was, if he preached it recently, but certainly it made the rounds on the internet recently, where John, there was a clip of John MacArthur saying, we lose down here. That was the exact quote. We lose down here. And he's talking about eschatology. He's saying that the church should not expect some reign of the church to where the rule of Christ is manifest through the church to where um, Christians, it's like basically the, the whole world is Christianized. That's what um, some people believe, but John MacArthur was saying, no, no, we lose down here. Well, the counter to that is uh, we win down here. And that's, uh, I, have, I have another meme here of like somebody made a meme like that was countering John MacArthur where it was like this lion face, like this snarling, growling face. And it says, we win down here. And that represents broadly these two theological, eschatological camps. You've got the one that says, hey, we lose down here, but we're faithful through persecution to the end and Christ will come back and rescue us from a world that's basically devolved into chaos. And then on the other end, uh, you have those that say, no, that we will, we will reign with Christ and the reign of Christ will be manifest on the earth before he comes back. That's a post-millennial view. And that's what R.C. Sproul taught. We're still not coming up on the screen. Well, there's the, there's the lion back there on the back wall. So um, these two, these two uh, views, and uh, these, they, they represent a theology of dignified defeat, that would be the premillennial view, versus the theology of a benevolent victory, where, in uh, both views have their merits. They both have their merits, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to present, I want to talk through the view that, I, that I'm thinking through at the moment, but it's still in flux. Um, but I, I want to talk about for a moment just how this affects our thinking and the way that we engage with the world. So uh, imagine that you have a coach giving a halftime speech and the team is down. It's like you're down, you're, you're in a big hole. And the coach says, boys, I'll be straight with you. You're going to lose this one. But I want you to go out there and I want you to, to win in your hearts. You're going to be good sports and we're going to show them how to lose with dignity. Now, you would say that's a, a, a Christian can do that. Right? I mean, a Christian can not be victorious. Nevertheless, the Christian would uh, be able to be, to be able to apply the commands of Scripture in such a way that he will... Are you come back up here, Nathan? Oh, okay. <laughs> Do grab a mic. Come up here and we can... Uh, I'm kidding. Um, I'm distracting you too, sorry. Um, but I mean, imagine... But if, if, that's your, if that's your coach's halftime speech, that's going to affect the psyche of the players. Now, they'll play the game and they'll probably play hard and they might make a few plays, but they're going to end up running out the clock under the spirit of defeat. Now, imagine... You know, the coach had a different kind of halftime speech, and this rousing, 
you know, Walt Disney, remember the Titans kind of moment where there's just this inspiring thing when the coach says, you can do this. I believe in you. You've got to dig deep. You've got to push hard. You've got to work hard and be strong. And you, the player's like, yeah. And they're like slow clapping and they're like, you know, cheering. And they go out and out of the tunnel after halftime and they just smoke in the second half all the competition. You know, that, that could happen. If, if that's their mindset, they're going to be more likely to come up with a victory. Oh, we got it? That, this, this meme is for you, guys. You, we win down here. Praise the Lord. This is divine confirmation of the post-millennial theology here, folks. <laughs> All right, so here, here's the point. Um, Nathan and Zach and everybody else, I see Max, Isaiah, thank you guys for doing that. <laughs> really do appreciate it because I have a, I do plan on relying on this today a good bit. Um, we don't determine our theology by what makes us feel good. So like what we're going to do is we're going to look at the text of scripture and see what scripture says. And I want to walk you through a few of the arguments uh, that are made. But um, I give you these illustrations to show you why this stuff matters and how even if our theology is Premillennial and our, our theology as well, I, I think we're going to lose down here like John MacArthur. That doesn't mean that you have to live with a spirit of defeat. We'll talk about that when we get to the end. But this stuff matters. It, it determines what's at stake in the church and the world. So this is part two of what we started last week, where Jesus is in the Olivet Discourse talking about um, the fact that Jerusalem and the, the temple itself is going to be destroyed and he's telling this to his followers in, you know, right before his crucifixion. And these things came to pass roughly 37, 38 years later in the year AD 70. Now, as we talked about last week, this event was cataclysmic for the Jews because it signaled something. It meant something very important because Jerusalem and the temple were symbols of God's presence and God's favor towards his people. So it was a symbol of hope. It gave them this confidence that no matter what's going on, God is here and he's with us. And uh, we're, you know, God is on our side. That was what the Jews thought. So whenever that temple and the city of Jerusalem gets destroyed, it sends an undeniable message to the Jews. And it is telling them, you are not God's people anymore. I mean, just imagine, and that's a theological truth. I mean, the scripture teaches as much. You are not God's chosen special people anymore. The Jewish epoch is over because the Jewish people in mass rejected their Messiah. So Jesus describes this event with language that gives appropriate gravity to what he is describing what he is saying is not, here's an, here's an event of world history. Here's a war that happened in a city that got destroyed. That kind of thing happened all the time. The Old Testament's got all kinds of, of, of stories of that happening. But this one, this one had incredible significance, such that you could say that this happening was no mere human event, but it shook the cosmos, the angelic realm, like all the, all the powers in heaven and earth, all the people that are, uh, are all the angelic beings and all the demonic beings, they all saw this as a massive cataclysmic struggle where God's judgment came upon this, uh, the Jewish people. So this is God's judgment permanently falling on his own people, and this is, this is a massively important event. And Jesus' language to describe it is appropriate to the gravity of what's taking place. It seems like he's describing more than what's happening. And that's, that's the problem with interpreting it. Because he's speaking of, well, there's signs in the sun, moon, and stars. It seems like you would be able to, while the city of Jerusalem is being destroyed, you'd be able to go outside, look up in the air, and you're going to see like a meteor shower and stars exploding in the sky. It kind of has that feel, resonance about it. But some interpreters believe that the entire discourse of the Olivet Discourse, so the entirety of Luke chapter 21, that Jesus is describing the events that took place in AD 70, and that's it. And he's doing it using apocalyptic language. That's R.C. Sproul's view. That, that view better fits the post-millennial framework 
that kind of puts to rest a lot of the destruction language associated with the end times. It says these things were largely fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then, uh, and those things, so that the, the Jews lost down here, but that's not the same as the saying the church loses down here. That's a post-millennial R.C. Sproul view. Other interpreters, which be the more John MacArthur view, other interpreters will say Jesus begins his discourse talking about the events of A.D. 70. That's undeniable. That is super clear. But then somewhere along the line, which we're going to get to today, his language shifts, and they say that Jesus begins to describe the end of all things, the end of time. So he's starting to describe his second coming, and that better fits the premillennial framework. So the church loses down here, but we will reign with Christ for all eternity when Jesus returns. You see the difference? Those aren't the only options, but those are the two broad camps that uh, would, would be in play here. And that's what we have time for today. So with all that, grab your Bible. Let's dig in. Luke 21. Luke 21. And I want to back up just a tad from where we were last week, and I want to cover the last uh, couple of verses that we talked about last week, and I want to let those springboard us into where we're going to go today. So this is, um, this is verse 23 and 24, and Jesus has already described the stones being thrown down and the destruction of Jerusalem and armies surrounding the city. And now verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, Alas for women who are pregnant, And for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." Last week, if you were here, I mentioned that there was this one section where Jesus used the word you or your 15 times, where he's saying, this is what will happen to you. You will be persecuted, all these things. And uh, that was his message to the people that were his followers at the time. So as for you, here's what you do, faithful follower of Jesus, to be obedient to me when these things come to pass. Now he's talking about Jerusalem being destroyed and the armies coming in and those who are bringing this destruction upon them, the army. And Jesus said, they, so now we're talking about they, a different group of people it seems like, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive, captive among all nations. Excuse me, he's talking about the Jewish people who are enduring this, who are not followers of Christ. That's who the they is here. So these people, they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will, be, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the, they are the Jews who are still in the city at this time, and they are the ones who are under God's wrath, as indicated um, in this verse, uh, verse 23, the wrath of God against this people. So you have you, you're the faithful followers of Jesus, who would all have been Jewish at the time, and then there's a they who are also Jewish, but they're not followers of Jesus, and they are the ones who are enduring the wrath of God as the siege of Jerusalem is happening. This times of the Gentiles, that is this new epoch that is beginning. So this, this uh, signals that there is a shift. So there was the, the shift of the, or there was the, the epoch of the Jews, and that would have been from the covenant of Abraham all up until this moment in AD 70. God's covenant people, the chosen ones. You've got the Exodus, you've got the prophets, Psalms, uh, all of those things happening. Jesus Christ being the, the, uh, the Messiah of the Jews. All of that up until AD 70 when they had rejected their Messiah, the Jewish people, and God says, you're under my wrath, you are no longer my people, and now this thing called the times of the Gentiles begin. And the times of the Gentiles is the church age. And the church age, that's us now, because most, if not all of us, are Gentiles. We're not ethnically Jewish. But we are nevertheless part of God's people because of our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Jew, the perfect representation of God as a human man. So while this is happening, you've got the, the shift of an epoch, the, the death of one epoch, the Jewish epoch, to this new epoch of the, the church age beginning. If you're an angel in heaven watching this unfold, 
your eyes are wide like saucers watching this. You're thinking, this is actually happening. This thing was massively important because you would have known the meaning and the significance. And you would probably describe it if you were an angel and, could, and knew the full meaning of it. You would describe it with language that appropriately captured the cosmic scope of this event. Okay. Here's where, here's the, here's the, the next text. Let's so just go to verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now that sounds like you would maybe even be able to look up in the sky and see something happening, right? So what Jesus is saying is this devastation of God that he is bringing wrath upon the earth and that devastation will correspond to celestial events. Things that happen in the heavens will correspond to this judgment on earth. Now the thing is is that Old Testament prophets often spoke this way about God's judgment which, can, which we see the prophecy and the fulfillment within the historical reference point of the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples of um, Old Testament prophets using this very similar language. So one is, here's Isaiah 13, 13. This text here is a reference to the judgment of Babylon, which took place. Isaiah 13, 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Now, when this actually took place, does that mean that there, were, like, that there was a literal shaking of the earth and there was a literal trembling of the heavens? Or um, I think we'd say that that's, that's a figurative language to describe something of such magnitude cosmically, spiritually, that the only word you could describe it is like, it's like the entire universe was shaking because of how significant and important this was. Here's another example. This is uh, also from Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. It's ironic that there's a fig tree here, and in this very text, we'll get to in a moment, Jesus uses a fig tree as a metaphor for the coming judgment of God. So this, this text here in Isaiah 34 is referring to the judgment on the nations, like God's judgment on, on the nations. But both of them, we see this, this apocalyptic language to describe God doing something in, in history that is observable, and it... it it's like the only language that can fully capture the magnitude of what's happening. Verse 27, still Jesus speaking. And then they, so these are the people who are under the judgment, who are in Jerusalem, the Jewish people, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What's that all about? So far, uh, up until this point, even in my life, until this week, as I've, as I've read this text, I've, I read this text as a straightforward reference to the second coming of Jesus at the end of all time. I'm, I'm questioning that view now, um, and it's because of just my own wrestling with this text. I've always been bothered by the fact that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's answering a question about the destruction of Jerusalem, and yet he inserts what seems to be a reference to the coming of Christ at the end of all things. And I want to show you even more reasons why that's a difficult reading. As far as I can tell, what I just described to you is what the majority of interpreters say. Um, a lot of, so my ESV study Bible, in the notes there, it says this is referring to the second coming of Christ. So that's a very well-respected uh, view that many people hold, if not most, most interpreters. 
However, um, there are a lot of difficulties, and there are some other interpreters that, that say that that actually doesn't account for the text uh, adequately. The reason, there's a few reasons, but the, one of the main reasons is that up to this point, the whole context of the Olivet Discourse is about the destruction of the temple. So you go back to verses 5 and 6, they walk into the temple, Jesus is saying, hey, look around all these stones, you see all these stones and things here, fellas, every one of them is going to get thrown down. And then his followers are like, whoa, 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 Jesus, when will these things take place and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? And then everything else in the rest of Luke chapter 21 is answering those two questions, a when question and a what question. That's the rest of the chapter. So whenever we're talking about the return of Christ at the end of all time, that, that seems to be out of sync with the question being asked. So Jesus is answering the question about God's judgment falling on the Jews for rejecting their Messiah, and he's doing so using known images of judgment that were familiar to his hearers from the Old Testament. It's not familiar to us as much because we don't know our Bibles as well as they did. But it, is, it was very familiar to them. When they hear, oh yeah, the, the heavens will be shaken and the sky rolled up like a scroll, they're like, okay, yeah, that sounds like Isaiah. Oh yeah, it sounds like Joel. It's like they, these things would have been familiar to them because they were seeped in this information. So um, it seems to me like it would be uh, out of place to suddenly shift topics to talk about the return of Christ at the end of all time while he's in the middle of talking about judgment that is happening in Jerusalem. And I just want to say this one more time. This is something that I'm still in process with, and so I'm not incredibly comfortable just saying, oh, here's the view. Here's what I think is right. I want to tell you what I'm inclined towards. Um, and I talked to, uh, you know, Wade Now We had a conversation about it. And Wade, what did you, what did you say? 60%, 70% my head? Um, something like that. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of 60% inclined to that way or whatever the percent. He's not 100% there. And we're both like, yeah, we kind of see that. And we both see that there's, there are difficulties here. So what I want to share with you is not something I think as this is something that we can hold as confidently as we can uh, the, gospel, uh, the gospel itself. So I'm still working this out. Nevertheless, the Son of Man, this re- reference here in verse 27 the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power. That language there is very reminiscent of a text in Daniel chapter 7, where the book of Daniel describes a Son of Man coming in the clouds and receiving dominion from a figure known as the Ancient of Days. So Christian theology would say the Ancient of Days is God the Father, and the Son of Man is Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. Let me read you that text. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is Daniel's prophecy. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So the son of man, that's Jesus. The ancient of days, that's God the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So if you know Daniel 7 as they would have known, they knew this material. And if that was in your mind, and you hear Jesus saying, hey, they're going to see the Son of Man coming and in clouds of heaven with power and glory, they're thinking, okay, he's, it's like, it's like a hyperlink. You know, it's like if you're reading an article and you see a little thing that's underlined in blue, you click on that and it takes you to some webpage and all the information on that webpage is, can be imported into that one little three-word phrase that's hyperlinked. Jesus is hyperlinking Daniel 7, saying, click on this, guys. This is what I'm talking about here. They're gonna see something. Now, he's not saying you will see He says, they will see. What are they going to see? They're going to see one like a son of man, and he's going to be coming on clouds with power and glory. He's going to be coming with the full judgment of God, and they're going to see that his dominion is forever. He's got an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom cannot ever be shaken. That's what they're going to see. So then did they literally see a human being coming in a cloudy environment? 
Some would say, yes, they, yes, they did. Some would say, well, actually, that's referring to the end times, and that's what we will all see when Jesus returns. Some will say, as R.C. Sproul says in the book that I read this week from R.C. Sproul, um, but some would say that, well, no, that's, he's talking about God's coming judgment, and the judgment of God, they're going to know that that judgment is the Son of Man, and that's Jesus Christ. And the judgment that is befalling them at the hands of the Roman army that is destroying them is actually the hand of God and the Son of Man bringing God's judgment through the army of the Roman army. So it's not a literal appearance of Jesus in the clouds. Rather, it is, a, is it an image that they would know referenced the judgment of God. So it may also refer to the second coming of Christ. Um, and that's, you know, whenever Jesus comes back, he will come back bodily. So he will. Um, and we'll see him. But, but I think this is, this is something we have to consider. And for me, it's an open question. I'm leaning towards what I described to you. We haven't even gotten to the, to the real tough one yet, though. All right, uh, verse 27 and 28. Oh, excuse me. No, I'm verse 29 now. Verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. What he's saying here is that, hey guys, you know what fig trees are like. You know that whenever, whenever uh, summer is near, the, the leaves start to come out. Like this time of year, you know, we start to see some, some uh, green showing up on bare trees. You know, oh, summer's, summer's close, spring is close. And he's saying whenever you start to see these things taking place that I've described to you, you know, the persecutions and the things we talked about last week, when these things start to happen, pay attention, guys, because it's close. It's really close. And that's your cue to get out of town because God's judgment is coming big time on Jerusalem. So he's talking to his people giving them clues to know when is it time to flee because he told them to flee in the text we looked at last week. So Jesus brackets, verse 32 is where where we need to spend some time. And so I kind of broke it out here. There's, There's two parts to it. This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So there's a what question and a why question. So the word until... That is the when question, and the all is the what question. So we need to have, we'll answer both of these in turn. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So we need to know what generation is he referring to. Because if he's referring to all followers of Jesus at all time, then what does he mean by this statement? This generation will not pass away. Or if he's talking about, well, a crooked and sinful and twisted generation will not pass away. Well, those exist at all time. Then what does he mean by this text here? But what if he means this generation as in you guys, this generation? If I, if I were to, you know, make a comment, you know, it's like, you know, Christ the King Church, this generation now is kind of losing its mind, right? You know, I'm talking about people that are going on right now right? That's what I'm talking about. So there's, there's two ways that you can interpret this. You could say he's referring to a frame of time, meaning this generation, these people that are alive right now, or a frame of mind, which is a sinful, wicked, perverse generation. And those, there's those people in every generation, right? So which is it? R.C. Sproul, in his book, it's The Last Days According to Jesus, was the book. You can get it at the library, digital download, uh, you can uh, get it in two minutes, which is what I did. Um, so you have these two options. What he says is that every time Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, in the Gospels, 38 examples of this, every single time he's talking to a people that were living at that exact time. So every time Jesus uses just the, the, the 
the naked phrase, this generation, he's referring to people who are alive right now. The exception to this is whenever Jesus adds a qualifier, this wicked generation, this sinful generation, this perverse generation, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Whenever Jesus speaks that way, then he's talking about a group of people that share a certain characteristic in every generation. And he, and he makes a compelling case that the, there's a broad scholarly consensus that every time you see this generation, he's talking about people who are alive right now. So whenever Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, he's saying, you guys that are alive right now, you 50 or 75 people or however many I'm talking to right now, your generation that's alive right now, you will not die. This will happen within your lifetime, which indeed it did. It was about 37, 38 years later in the year 80, 70. So the time marker is this generation, meaning he's saying, and Jewish reckoning, typically, a generation was about 40 years. And this happened about 37, 38 years. So if that's, the, if that's correct, then that leads to the second question. If all the things Jesus is talking about in this whole Olivet Discourse will come to pass in this generation while we're still alive, then what about the second coming of Christ thing? What about the Son of Man appearing in the clouds? What about the heavens being shaken and all of the signs in the heavens? What about all of those things? Another way you could say it is, were his predictions accurate? Because if not all of the things, if we can't say all of these things happened, well, then his prediction would have been inaccurate. And of course, we believe that God's word is perfect, the word of Christ is perfect, and he does not make any mistakes. So we have to know, how did, how do these things fit together? So if, in fact, Jesus is true, which we believe he is, that all has taken place, and all has taken place in this generation, which would have been about 40 years, then what is the all? What is the all that has taken place? What's he referring to? And the answer to that is Jesus would have been using figurative, apocalyptic language. So he's describing things using language that need not be taken in the most literal sense. And by literal, I don't mean, like, we, we believe the Bible literally, but that means we believe it according to its genre. You know, we, we see poetry as poetry. We see apocalyptic as apocalyptic. It doesn't mean that everything is taken as literally as possible. It means we interpret it according to the genre that represents that, that book of the Bible. So we, we believe the word of God is true. And so Jesus' words being true, we recognize Jesus is using apocalyptic language to describe things that did in fact take place. So all the things that, that Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse did in fact come to pass within that generation and the parts that stand out is like, wait a minute, that didn't happen. It's like, well, yes it did, but he's using apocalyptic language that we're not meant to take precisely literally. So it's not like in the book of Isaiah, there's a scroll and you can just roll it up. It's like, no, the scroll is being rolled up like a scroll is talking about, you know, these, these massive cataclysmic things happening in the spiritual realm that we may not even be able to see. So if, if that's the case, then whenever Jesus said, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, Jesus was speaking in the language of the prophets to talk about the destruction of God, the, the judgment of God coming, and Jesus being the agent of that destruction. He is the one who is bringing it. This interpretation that I'm describing to you now falls well within the common way the Old Testament prophets spoke about God's judgment. So Jesus did not change the subject and start speaking about the end times, whenever he will return at the end of all things, and the judgment that will come then. He's talking about what will happen within their lifetimes when the judgment of Jerusalem will be like the Son of Man coming in judgment just like he did in the book of Daniel. So if that's, if that's true, then everything in Luke 21 refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now there are other interpreters that will take this differently and they'll say, well actually Jesus changed the subject or at least he broadened the discourse 
and he started talking about the second judgment around verse 25. And in this view, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that part was literal and fulfilled in AD 70. But that event foreshadows a future final judgment that will happen when Christ returns. It's almost like Jesus said, well, you ask about this one thing, and I've been talking about that so far, but let me talk about this other thing that's related. The problem with that view is that he says, until all has taken place. So if you're uncomfortable saying, well, there's figurative language here, it's unavoidable. So either the time marker is figurative, this generation doesn't mean this, it's a figurative way of speaking of all times, people. So you've got a figurative there. Or if, if that's not literal, or if that's, if that's literal, he means this generation of people who are alive now, then this part, the all has taken place, that has to be figurative. So either the time is figurative, or the events are figurative. Either way, dealing with figurative language in this discourse is unavoidable. So let me try to sum this up. If we take both phrases in verse 32 at face value, this generation and all has taken place. If we take those as face value, then we have to acknowledge the figurative language, either of time or events. I'll give you two labels, if, you're, if you like theological labels. There's a futurist view and a preterist view. The futurist view would say that some of Luke 21 has not taken place yet, and Jesus is speaking figuratively about time, and the second coming, and all. there's still things yet to happen in Luke 21. A futurist view says there's still things yet to happen in the future. A preterist view is the opposite, saying, well, actually, the, the description of the events, those were figurative, but the time itself is literal. He's talking about this generation, and so all the events of Luke 21 are preterist, meaning they've already happened. They've already been fulfilled, as Jesus said that they would be. So the futurist view, they would think more like John MacArthur, and that for reasons I can't explain here, that would lead itself, lend itself more to a we lose down here mentality because we're expecting cataclysmic loss in the future. And that, that's, that it's like God's going to burn it up and that's yet to happen. A preterist view lends itself towards more of an optimistic and hopeful view of the future, meaning that this cataclysmic judgment of God took place back during uh, AD 70 and so the final judgment is after this millennial reign where the church overcomes. And the church, you know, there's this, there's this golden age where the church for a thousand years will, will reign in glory. And, and you can poke holes in either view. I mean, I've got plenty of holes I could poke in the post-mill view. Um, and I'm not saying I'm post-millennial. I'm like, I don't know. Like the pan-millennial, have you heard this? It'll pan out in the end. You know, I'm kind of pan-millennial right now. I just don't know what to think because these are still in flux. But I'm, I am leaning... Um, I mean, I, I do like this. I think this, this argument is compelling. So this is a bit wet cement, but that's, that's what I lean, the preterist view. And I think that it fits best with Scripture, and it's more hopeful in its eschatology. So here are things that we can all agree on, regardless of your eschatological view. Jesus Christ will physically return to earth one day. Everybody believes that if you're a true Christian. All the way back to the Apostles' Creed, we believe this. He will return. Two, there will be a bodily resurrection of all people who have ever lived. Three, Satan will be defeated finally and constrained forever. Four, there will be a final judgment in which believers join Christ for eternity while non-believers are separated from God's presence. We all agree with that. Okay? Now, I know we're running short on time. But let me, let me just finish this out, and I'll give you a couple quick application points. So after all that's over, now Jesus gives further exhortation. He's going to tell them, here's what you need to do based on what he just said. Number one, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. I'll just finish this out. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man.
Three quick application points. Look in, look out, look up. Watch yourselves, look in. We live our lives regardless of your eschatological view. That's a big word, eschatological. That's a six-syllable word. Regardless of your eschatological view, every one of us lives in light of Christ's victory. So regardless of your end times theology, we are not to live defeated lives in this life being hopeless and despairing. He says, watch out lest your hearts be weighed down. You're not to be heavy hearted. Your heart should not be weighed down. And when your heart is weighed down, what do you do? Well, you uh, substance abuse. You find some way to, 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 to numb the pain, to numb the fear. You find some way to just kind of to forget about it all. And so Jesus warns, hey, don't be a drunkard. <laughs> don't be a pothead. Don't be a kind of guy who's just always looking for something to numb the fear and dread that you have about life. These things are sin. He's warning about worldliness, about the cares of this life weighing us down. In our day, We've got, you know, drunkenness and drugs and all that, but I think there's also that may be more common in our church is just this preoccupation with entertainment. Just, just find some way to tune out, check out, forget about life, and just entertain ourselves to where it's become an expectation and an entitlement. I see this in myself, and I've been taking it before the Lord. I'm like, I care too much about being entertained. I don't like being bored. I always have to have something in my AirPods or something. You know, just, there's just always something. And I think that that's a, that is something Jesus is saying, hey, watch out for this. Watch out for just being overly preoccupied with entertainment, with, with pleasure, worldly pleasure, that sort of thing. Make the most use of the time. So if you think it's all going to burn, let it go. It doesn't matter. That's sin. Don't just think, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. No, that's sin. We're called to be involved. We're called to serve, to do good works. We don't know when Christ will return. So look in. Look in and don't let yourself fall prey to this trap. All right, number two, look out. Stay awake. This is a call to discernment. When you're staying awake, it's like you're a watchman. You're a, you're, you're a sentry. You're looking for threats and dangers, and you're watching, you're staying awake through a watch of the night. It means you're looking out for things that could be harmful or dangerous. I think you have, you have some people that really have that strong protective instinct, but I have also seen in uh, certain corners of the evangelical world a strong resistance to protecting. And they'll, they'll uh, label you with pejoratives like culture warrior, or you're just... Why are, you, why are you being, why are you wanting to make war the, against the world? Why don't you want to love people when you're warning people or whenever you're speaking truth about some difficult cultural issue? It's like, no, I'm doing what Jesus said to stay awake. Because if I'm not saying anything, if I'm not calling anything out, then everybody's falling asleep and we think it's all fine. There's no danger. Nobody said there's danger. Nobody warned me. But if there's warning, if there's some, hey, we got to watch out, there's a threat on the horizon, some people will dismiss them as, you know, like, some, uh, you know, reactionary, but Jesus says, stay awake. So the person who stays awake is the one who's responsible for looking out and raising the alarm as needed. Now, it could be overdone, of course, but, but we're, Jesus is saying, like, we need to stay awake. So keep your eye out for danger, over, dangers to your own soul, danger to the souls of others. You can do this in the church. Hey, I see something there. Like, we can sharpen, strengthen, challenge one another. But I've seen in modern Christianity some that just have no category for the fact that we are in a spiritual war. We have an enemy that wants to take us out, that wants to destroy us. And they think that opposing it, calling it out, that's your problem. That's some kind of psychological disorder that you have. You're just living in fear. It's like, no, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm totally confident in the victory of Christ. And nevertheless, there are real dangers that we need to be aware of. So the New Testament tells us over and over and over again, we're in a cosmic struggle, we're fighting a spiritual battle, and yet Christ has won the victory decisively. The end is never in doubt. Nevertheless, we have a duty to wage war until he returns. Number three, look up. Number three, look up. Praying that you will have strength. 
praying that you have strength. So it's saying that you don't have strength on your own, Christian. Like within ourselves and our flesh, we, it's, we don't have the tools that we need to fight in our flesh because we're frail, we're sinful and fallen. However, we are forgiven, we are saved, we have our faith in Jesus Christ, we are indwelt with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we have power within us because the power at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, which is where the victory came from in the begin with, to begin with. So we do have power. So it's, the strength is in the Lord. So regardless of the when or the what of the return of Christ, know this, we're on the winning team. We are, we are victors. Our Lord will see us through. And so we fight. You have to fight your sin. You have to fight against the devil. You have to fight against temptation, fight against laziness and apathy. You, we've got to be fighters. We fight against the devil, the dark powers that's in the world. But we fight all of these things in the power of his victory through the spirit that is at work within us. So who is your strength? God is. Who is your shield? God is. Who is your help? God is. And he has promised that he will give you what you need. So he's not left us alone. We're not vulnerable. So Jesus says, pray. That's our access. That's plugging in. Our access to the power of God is through prayer. God, strengthen me. Strengthen us as a church. And God will answer that prayer. So this is a good way to end it. Every true Christian can agree on these things. The ultimate victory of Christ and his people is certain. It is beyond doubt. He conquered the grave. Jesus ascended to the Father. And it is no less certain that he will return in power and glory. He will return as the judge of all humanity. He will judge the living and the dead. All of those who reject the Lord will suffer eternal consequence for their sin. And all of those of us who confess Christ who trust him for the forgiveness of our sin, we will join him in everlasting victory and glory. And we will together participate in the eternal reign of Christ. We'll reign with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your victory is sure. We thank you, Jesus, that you've spoken spoken to us in your word. And Lord, I pray that the words that I've spoken here today will be helpful and useful, even as I am wrestling through the scriptures myself. And I, I just I don't, feel, don't feel entirely confident. But Lord, I am confident in your word. And may that message ring in the hearts of your people. And may you, by your spirit, um, speak through what I have said and what people wrestle in their own hearts with your, with your word. And I pray that you will help all of us to come to a greater knowledge of the truth And that we will apply that truth to our lives and that we will not live in fear, but that we will do what you say here, that we will look in, look out, and look up. And we'll confess our sin. We'll be humble and repentant. That we will look out at the dangers of the world and we will be mindful and watchful that there's an enemy of our souls that wants to take us out. And that we will look up to God who gives us help because you will give us the help we need and we can pray for it. You promise to give it to us. All of this was purchased bought, paid for forever by the blood of Jesus Christ that we celebrate now as we come to your table. So as we pull up a chair and we dine at the feast you have prepared, meet your people, encourage, strengthen, embolden us for service. Thank you, Jesus, that you've done all of this. We ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.